0: In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is just a point of reminder because I'm not going to go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 1 and and start a a major review here, but uh, I do want to mention that if you believe the first four words of verse 1 of chapter 1, then you can believe every word that uh, you find in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And That's been really kind of the goal of our studying of the, uh, of the book of Genesis as we have over the past three and a half months. We're not quite done yet, are we? But we are moving along. Let's read down from eight, uh, verse 8 down through verse 17. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed... And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison or Pishon. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold.
1: And the gold of that land is
0: good. There is Bdellium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, Thou shalt surely die. Shall we pray? Our Father God, we thank you and we bless you for your word and for the privilege that we receive every time we come together and open our Bibles. The privilege of being able to read and to study your word And we ask, Lord, as we do every time we do this, we ask for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would grant us your wisdom and understanding, and that you would fill us, Lord, with that wisdom, and that our eyes would surely be opened to your truths and our minds, able to receive it, to understand it, that we may also apply it, Lord, to our very lives. We thank you this day for our guests who have come here today to be with us. We ask you bless them today. For all those who are here today, Lord, as always, may you continue, Lord, to open their hearts to your wondrous presence, to your power, to your purpose, by your grace and mercy. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The more that we dig into the details of the book of Genesis, the more that we realize the deep-seated purposes and plans of an extremely wise and rational creator who would never do, say, or act on anything or Create, make, or form anything capriciously. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, that is to say that God never does anything randomly, erratically, changeably, impulsively, suddenly, or even on a whim. And never does he do anything superficially. Nothing God does, in other words, is ever by accident or even by coincidence. We can say with great certainty that the Almighty God, the Creator of the heavens and of the earth, is sovereign and providential in all that He does. We can take to heart the very words of the Psalmist in Psalm 33 verses 6 through 11 when He says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth and storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. In other words, He brings the counsel of the heathen to nothing. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. And then take note of verse 11. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever the thoughts of His heart to all generations you see god knew exactly what he was doing the day that he formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life the lord never does anything by trial and error aren't you glad to know that God never does anything by trial and error. For for Him, there's never going back to square one. How many of of you, as as well as me, have said that? You know, well, I I really messed up this part of my life, and so I've got to go back to square one. Anybody here? Alright, square one, yeah. God never has to go back to square one. (laughs) He does all things right the first time. And every time. And we, being created beings must stand in awe of all of His plans and all of His purposes, His ways, and all of His wonders. And all we can do is say what the Apostle Paul has so eloquently stated when he says in Romans 11, verses 33-36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways. Past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Well, the Lord with great wisdom and with great care prepared his greatest creation, man, a place to live. This is what we spoke about last week. A garden of delight, a garden of beauty, a garden of luxury. We spent a good deal of time last week focusing our attention on the reality of Eden, as well as the responsibility of Eden. With that said, let's look a bit closer now at the specific and the significant uh, trees that are mentioned in the garden uh, that we have seen in our text now. Verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Remember that we said that that gives us a specific direction. Therefore, uh, this is not some kind of uh, metaphor. It's not, uh, it's not some kind of symbolic uh, place. It is a real place. If we believe that the earth is real when God made it, then obviously Eden is real. So God gives us a specific direction. A garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground it made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also, in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Among all the trees in the garden were those two of singular and significant importance. One was called the tree of life in the midst of the garden, whose fruit imparts immortality to those who eat it. Now this is a very important point to to grasp. The fruit of the tree of life imparts immortality. Let's make, let's make the distinction. Immortality. Not immorality. Immortality. <laughs> my, my tongue didn't want to bring the T out of there. Immortality. Now, this is a very important point. Go over to chapter 3 for just a moment. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. But we already know what happens in chapter 3, right? So we're, we're not so much getting ahead of ourselves as we're being reminded of what happened in the garden. But there in verses 22 and 20, uh, through 24, it says, And the Lord God said, Now this is after the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, we'll call them. Because <laughs> that's what they're called in Scripture. But Adam and Eve, it is after they have taken of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eaten of that tree. And this is what the Lord said. He said, Behold, a man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What is that telling you? Think about that for a moment. God is saying, before that happens. First of all, it tells us, even when they had the tree of life in their midst, they didn't take of it yet. So, that, that gives us that indication. But it also tells us something. Notice in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence it was, he was taken. So he drove out the man, he placed, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, angels, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So, what, what is that telling us? It, it's telling us then that because they hadn't, of course, eaten of the tree of life, which they had... The privilege too. God told them it was okay to have all the the fruit of the trees of all of uh, of the garden except for the one. But they took of the one first. So he says, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat forever. Had they taken of the tree of life after they had taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, guess what? They would have been eternally separated from God. They would have been eternally in their sins, therefore separated from the God who created them. You see the importance of that? Very important for us to understand this. That fruit, the fruit of the tree of of life, imparts immortality, eternity. So had man taken of the tree of life after having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have lived forever apart from the God who created him. But we're going to talk about this more later.
1: Now the other tree mentioned
0: is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, whose fruit was forbidden to man. Again, jump down to verse 17, the last verse of our text today. It says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So it's obvious that that both trees, along with the rest of the fruit trees provided in the garden by God, would have been good for food for a couple of reasons. Well, remember what God pronounced all things to be. If you go back to verse 31 of chapter 1, remember what God said of all that He created. He said, God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. So every tree that produced fruit in the garden every fruit of those trees was very good. There are no exceptions, you see. Now secondly, the physical fruit of any tree in the garden would have been of such rich nourishment to have been able to halt, and and this is somewhat speculation, but please understand that it would have been able to to, to halt the aging process in the human body. We would have to... Speculate here. Of course, to think in such terms is not really within our limited understanding at this time. But remember, these events took place before the fall of man. And we have to say that even though everything is in motion, and we have the earth created and the planets created and the stars, and we have all of the universe really functioning now, Even still, everything was perfect. Therefore, the second law of thermodynamics haven't really kicked in yet. And and, and we have to then say that that second law of thermodynamics, that says that everything that has been made or everything that is material is going to wear out or wear down. That's called entropy. We've talked about that many times in chapter 1. But the fact is, everything's still perfect. So that law, really hasn't kicked in. So... These events are taking place before the fall of man. Everything is still good. Everything is still perfect. Even though scientists today researching in the field of gerontology, the study of the phenomena of aging, and by the way, that's a study after the fall, not before, uh, still have no real understanding of what systems of chemicals might be able to stop the process of aging. They're still, try, they're still trying to figure that out. Now, some aging has slowed down in some cases due to... Uh, Fairly good research about uh, things that we eat and and whatnot. But but it's only slowed it down, not stopped it. We won't be able to stop that process. But the good thing to know is that God does. God does know. And God does understand. And then for us to understand that, we need to realize that there still is. A tree of life. There still is the tree of life. Again, we're going to deal with that uh, in chapter 3 when we look at the fact that there's a tree of life in the garden. And then eventually after Adam is expelled from the garden, we hear no more of the tree of life per se until the book of Revelation. By the way, in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 Jesus makes reference to the tree of life as he is giving a message to the church in Ephesus there in Revelation chapter 2. And as he's completed now this particular message to the church of Ephesus, he says this to them He says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You want to stop the aging process. You eat of the tree of life, and you shall live forever. And what's even more significant is that in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22... We find in verses 1 and 2, again, the mention of the tree of life where it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it. And on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the fruit were for the healing of the nations. And again, once, once more, we see the tree of life mentioned. We made reference last time to the fact that uh, for us to have come to eternal life through Jesus Christ obviously brings us to the understanding that for us, the tree of life is the work of Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ himself. For if we, if we take of him, as he said, take, if you eat of me, you'll never die again. You'll never hunger. You'll never thirst. Everything that we need for life eternal is found in Jesus Christ. He is our tree of life. Again, we'll come back to that. But getting back to the garden, where Adam was placed to watch over God's creation, there were those two trees the tree of life to remind Adam of God's goodness. Because God didn't want to just create Adam to be physically strong and physically well. Didn't want to create Adam just to be spiritually strong and spiritually well. We touched upon this a little bit last week. There were physical attributes given to to Adam. There were spiritual things given to Adam. But there was the tree of life. What is that? The eternal things. That's God's goodness for us too. He doesn't give us just life to live on this earth and then goodbye. It's over. Said and done. Let's turn the light out. You're, You're just ashes to ashes, dust to dust again. God's goodness is about our whole being. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there to remind him of his need to be obedient to God. Adam was created by God out of the dust of the ground. Adam probably looked around the garden and said, this is wonderful. Adam is taken and put into the garden and he looks around and he says, okay, I'll dress it and I'll keep it. And then God gives him command. I don't want to get too much ahead of myself, but with that command comes the need to obey. We'll speak more about this in verses 16 and 17 in just a moment. The next section appears to be parenthetical in that it seems to break the sequence of thought in the narrative. But there's some very important things that we need to take out of verses 10 through 14. So let's read it. It says, And a river went out of Eden to, go, to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, or Pishon. That is it which encompasses the whole land of Havilah where there is gold the gold of that land is good. There is Bedalium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia or Cush. Some of your translations may say Cush, uh, Ethiopia. Uh, and the name of the third river is Hidekal. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth I- river is Euphrates. Now, now, as we study through this passage, we have to admit that quite a few of these places or rivers are unknown uh, to us today. But we do know one thing. We know that the geography of Eden, and I talked again a little bit about this last week. and I want to keep referring to that because there, there's an important, uh, important thing to understand. That the geography of the earth was, was, was really different before the flood than it was after the flood. But uh, that geography of Eden had to change as a result of the flood so that only two of the rivers mentioned, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and possibly one more, the Gihon, uh, are found where four were found originally. So now we can say that the Garden of Eden uh, met man's need for water and for irrigation. And even though the earth still had a canopy around it, we talked about that canopy, a firmament of water that, that uh, encircled the earth with a mist Nonetheless, there was a river. God found it important to place a river that would break off into these uh, four major rivers. And there are a couple of of reasons for listing the four rivers and several surrounding lands. First of all, it was uh, to show that the Garden of Eden was a real garden. Here again, we're dealing with reliability of Scripture. We're dealing with the authenticity of Scripture. We're dealing with the evidence of Scripture to be... Certainly authentic. So this is given to us to show that the Garden of Eden was a real garden. We dealt with the reality of Eden last week. To show that the first man, Adam, was a real person. Certainly he had to, you know, had to live somewhere. And if God says there was a man that he created out of the dust of the ground, then he put him into into the garden. He was a real person. Thirdly, to show that the account of Genesis is not only accurate, but it is truth. And then, fourthly, to show the truth of how God created man and placed man in the garden and the truth of what happened to man. Where we came from, in other words. It's just simple. Where we came from. But as for the places mentioned, another reason can be considered for listing them. And I want you to pay close attention to this. Very important. Even though we cannot place the river Pishon, we are told that it flowed through the land of Havilah, a land known for its gold, bedelium and onyx stone. Now, Havilah is mentioned in Scripture describing where the sons of Ishmael dwelled. Now, before we read that, I, I, I need to make, make it clear again that Moses is writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the wilderness for the children of Israel. He's writing these things down as God is giving them the inspiration to. And so the terminologies and the places and, and, and the events and, and the locations are all things that would to some extent be understood by Moses and the children of Israel. With that in mind then, Havilah is mentioned in scripture. And it's mentioned in scripture describing where the sons of Ishmael dwelt. Genesis 25, verse 18, it says, And they dwelt from Havilah unto shore. Now this is all very important, very significant that you see the pattern here. They dwelt from Havilah unto shore, that is, before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria. Now why is that mentioned to us in that way? From Havilah unto shore, that is, before Egypt as it goes toward Assyria. If you look at one of your Bible maps of the early areas of the uh, times of the patriarchs, you can see the area from Egypt to Assyria. There was no Babylon at the time, so uh, Assyria then would be, of course, uh, the the major uh, northern kingdom, as it were. But that whole land going along the Mediterranean where Israel is, All before it, right down at Egypt, all the way around up into the northern part of Assyria. That is what is mentioned here. And so as Moses is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is describing a land not unfamiliar to the Israelites. They certainly knew where Egypt was because they had just come out of Egypt. And so from Egypt to Assyria, well understood by them. Now, next mentioned, the next river mentioned is the Gihon River. And uh, it's described as flowing through the land of Ethiopia or Cush. Now, we know that Ethiopia is south of Egypt, in the continent of Africa. So this means, and it it may very well mean, that the Gihon could be the Nile River. Very possible. Now I want you to add to this the thought that the Tigris and the Euphrates River run through Eden, suggesting that the Garden of Delight would have lain in the general area now of the Promised Land. And this is what you have to pay attention to. From Egypt to Eden... From Egypt, through Assyria, to Mesopotamia, from Egypt, to Iraq, what is modern-day Iraq. Listen carefully. Genesis 15, verse 18. The promise that God makes to Abram of the land to be given to the children... Of Abram, the children of promise through Isaac, the children of Israel. In the same day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. (laughs) What is that telling us? Do these rivers mentioned in chapter 2 of Genesis mark the boundaries of the land of promise to Abraham? Something to think about. Something to think about. Let me kind of throw this in here because this is a commercial. You know, we've been talking about going to Israel in in March. We're making our sixth trip to Israel now in March. And uh, so I'm going to let you know, let you in on a little secret. That's the very heart of the promised land. You're going to be in the very heart of Eden if we consider this whole area to be the promised land. You see, what we see of Israel today is not all that God promised them. He said, from the, la- from the river in Egypt to the Euphrates, All of that. Interesting. Something to think about. Keep it in your minds. Keep it in your hearts. And then think about the fact that the gold and the precious stones mentioned are there to remind us of paradise regained. Because we know something's coming in the paradise that's there now. It is going to eventually, in chapter 3, become paradise lost. When man sins and disobeys God. But God always promises that there is a paradise to be regained. And let's look at the paradise to be regained because there are mentions of stones and gold as well to tie this all in. Revelation chapter 21, verses 16 through 21. And the city lieth foursquare, speaking of the, the new city of uh, Jerusalem, or the city of New Jerusalem. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he, measureth, uh, he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And, the me- and he measured the wall thereof, 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper stone. The city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. Interesting that um, the Moses would uh, here uh, mention Havilah as being that land that has good stones in it. Um, the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasis, the eleventh, a Jason the twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. And you know, I've always, for years and years and years, as I look at that and I think, well, these pearls are huge. I mean, they're gates to the city. And I thought, I would just love to see the oysters that those pearls came from. They've got to be humongous. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the, city of the, uh, in the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass the paradise to be regained but now with all of this in mind we have to ask ourselves these questions what is the purpose of man's creation then why would he now create Why would God now create man in a a space time universe in which man would dwell When the triune God had existed from eternity without men. You know, it's impossible to answer these questions apart from God's revelation. It's impossible to answer these questions without the revelation of God's word. But being that we're part of this creation, we are really in no position to judge our creator. As to why things are done and the way that they have been described to us. You know, what God does must be right and it must be rational, as I stated at the onset of our study. Consider Paul's statement in Romans 9, verse 20. Paul says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Why have you made me this way, Lord? In a sense, we'd be foolish to, to ask that question. Because God does nev- never does anything irrationally. He never does anything randomly. He never does anything impulsively. He doesn't do anything capriciously. Nor, do that, nor does He do anything superficially. What God does, He always does sovereignly and providentially. So with that thought in mind, let's look at verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, or thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Literally, what God says there in the Hebrew is in the day that thou eatest thereof, dying you shall die. But an interesting way to put it. Dying you shall die. First of all, the command that God gave Adam to dress the garden and keep it shows us that work is not a curse. Since sin had not yet come into the world... Work is not a curse. It's a good thing to do. And so work is part of the divine economy from the very beginning. One Christian theologian put it this way, and I think uh, these are words to, to really take to heart. He said, the ideal state of sinless man is not one of indolence, which means laziness, by the way. The ideal state of sinless man is not one of laziness without responsibility. Work and duty belong to the perfect state. Work and duty. And, and so, work is a good thing. God has called us to be servants. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that He calls His children. He calls us His children. Coming to Christ, He, he calls us His friend. But of all the things that we see God calling His people, He calls us Servants. Bond, servants. we've chosen to be yielded to God and to Christ. So whatever it is that God has called us to do, we might call it work, but not work as we sometimes say about work on Monday morning. Oh, well, I got to go to work today. We get to work for God. And that's a good thing. That's an exciting thing because we never know what's going to happen when we work for God. A lot of times we might run into some "Mm," trial, and then we see what God does in taking us through the trial so that we can see the glory of His benefits. That's work. But for us, it's not work. It's a joy. Gee, I wish I could see that joy in your faces when I talk about it that way.
1: <laughs> Secondly, we see that twice
0: we're told that God put Adam into the Garden of Eden. Twice. In this section, He says, He put, God, he put Adam in, in the Garden. And he, in here, it says that He put him there to dress it and to keep it. Now, the word for put here can be translated as set to rest. So God set Adam in the garden to rest. That's another thought, an idea about the work that we do for God. When we are working for God, we're doing that work from a position of rest, not a position of restlessness. We are resting in the finished work of God and a finished work of Christ on the cross. That's why we do what we do. And we do it with joy. That's why we are told to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice, Paul said. Because the things that we do for God is a matter of doing these things from the rest that we have in Christ. Not from working to try to be saved. Like so many who come to our doors and knock on the doors because they feel like they've got to knock on doors to be saved. That's what they're told. You're saved by your works. The Bible tells us we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What we do in serving God, we do because we love God. Therefore, it is something that we do because it's a privilege to do. Not because it is a problem to do. The Lord said Adam to rest in a delightful garden paradise by giving a meaningful work to do as a husbandman. Now we're going to we're going to use that word a few times in the next few weeks. Husbandman. It's just a King James word to talk about of a farmer. It's a fancy King James word for farmer. A husbandman. You know, today we don't find ourselves in a very delightful garden, do we? The world is a dreadful wilderness in comparison to the Garden of Eden. Spiritually speaking, though, the Lord has work for us to do in the garden in which we're in. He calls us stewards as well as calling us servants, doesn't he? We are stewards as managers of that which God has called us to oversee. So we are servants, we are stewards... We are also compared to farmers sowing seed, watering, laboring in the harvest fields. As a matter of fact, James chapter five verses seven and eight say, uh, "It says this: uh, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it, until he received the early and the latter rain. A farmer, in other words, understands how things go." When you are a farmer, you plant and you wait. The early rain comes, you tend, you keep. The latter rain comes, then comes the harvest. Then he goes on to say, Be also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh, draws near. So, James. James's encouragement is that we need to be like farmers as we wait for the coming of the Lord. A farmer doesn't go and plant a seed and then all of a sudden after he's planted the seed he just sits there and says, okay, I can't wait. I think I saw it. He knows it's going to take days, weeks. So he goes off and does other things. Waiting on the Lord is that way for us. We need to be busy doing our father's business, serving the Lord, living our lives as a, as the, as a light, an example of Christ in our lives. And the fact, the, the fact that the matter is the Lord has given us great resources as he gave Adam in the garden. I mean, think about this. Here's one man in a garden and he's got a whole river that turns into four rivers to take care of the garden. We would wish that we had four rivers to take care of our gardens. We have to ration water every summer. We have to take three-minute showers. Who does? But God has given us great spiritual resources. Notice in John chapter 4, verse 14, what Jesus says himself. He says, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. These are the words that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in Samaria. There she was, sending her bucket down into the well to get water to exist physically. And the Lord says, but the water that I shall give him shall be in Him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's a resource God has already given us. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have that water, and it doesn't run out, and we don't have to ration. Revelation twenty one verse six, and he said unto me, It is done, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. If you are a thirst today for the waters of of eternal life, the only waters that are going to matter are the waters that come from Jesus Christ Himself, who is for us the water of life. Blessed are those who thirst after righteousness. For hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God and of Christ? Then you shall be filled. That is one promise God will keep. But are you hungry and thirsting for righteousness? There is the resource of of God's Word, First John chapter one, verse one. As John is giving details of of the very fact that his the apostles of Jesus all saw Jesus, all touched him, all knew him, Uh, he was real to them. He says this in First John one one: "That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the Word of Life." Speaking of the Logos, who is the Logos? Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 1. We've handled handled Him, we've touched Him. Jesus said, I am the Word of life. And guess what? We have that resource available to us. And certainly, we also have His Word. And we've looked at it. And we've beheld it, and we've handled the Word of Life. This is just a book, but what it contains is the very truth of the Word of Life, Jesus Himself. Then, of course, we have also given His wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says, But of Him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And redemption. All of these things Jesus Christ is for us. But first and foremost he is wisdom for us. By the way going back to James chapter 1 verse 5. If you read that verse it says. If any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of God. And he will give without reproach. God wants us to be wise. In the things that we do for him. God placed Adam in this garden because the garden was perfect and because Adam was still perfect the perfect print of God created in the image of God the first Adam there was the necessity to understand those trees again As we prepare to close today, we see that God put Adam into the garden. And then he commanded the man. This is the first commandment that we see given to man. The first commandment direct from God to man. Not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. With this warning. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So there was the great choice. There was the great test that had to be made. It involved a simple prohibition. How was God going to arrange for man to exercise his freedom of choice and his will? How was God going to test man's choice, his love and his loyalty for God? Man had to be tested to show that he loved God above all else, that that he wanted to to live with God, And, and the test, of course, was essential, otherwise man would be nothing more than a robot. The critics of God and of the Bible and of Christ are all quick to tell us that, you know, that this is what God has made. We're just robots. If there really is a God, then those who are foolish to follow him are just robots. Sometimes they'll say that God is created in the image of man. A lot of opposition to the truth of the the gospel and of the Bible and of the scriptures. there's something that we've already stated and we have to remind ourselves about, and that is God's love for us. And that's something that you really can't fabricate, especially in these first two chapters of the book of Genesis. If God does not give man the opportunity to choose... then indeed we are made in such a way that we shouldn't have to be uh, accountable for what we do. So the plot thickens, doesn't it? The same is true with us. We, we have to choose. Oh, we know there's a foreknowledge of God, that God knows things from beginning to end, and He knew, us, he knew that you would be here today. Even before you thought you'd be here today. But it doesn't take away the very fact that we are in the scriptures encouraged, exhorted to choose. We have to choose, we have to make a decision. Jesus Christ, God's Son, has come to earth. He came, He took upon Himself flesh. He went to the cross for our sake, to die for our sins. He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He was buried, but on the third day He rose again from the dead to secure for us eternal life to all who would believe. He's here right now. And if we ignore and neglect or deny or rebel against Him, we disobey God and choose to live without God. But if we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we obey God, we choose to live with God. And then we make sure that when we do that, we realize the depth of God's love. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19 tells us that we need to choose life. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have said before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that that both thou and thy seed may live. Hundreds of generations have passed when that was given to us, and yet it is still the same today. Choose life. We hear the words of Joshua near the end of his life as he's preparing to enter into his eternity. And and, and he says to all of, of Israel, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What did he just say in that statement? He made a choice. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We choose to serve the Lord. We choose to follow God. We choose to live for God. We choose to love God. Bringing this thought to the New Testament in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And I I thought of this verse because of the use of the word commandment. And this is His commandment. That we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And love one another. As He gave us commandment. Why is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden there before Adam along with the tree of life? Choose you this day whom you will serve. In this garden, Adam, you have been given all kinds of trees. And you can have the fruit of any of those trees which includes the tree of life but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you're not to eat of that tree because on the day that you eat of it you will surely die now think tree of life tree of knowledge of good and evil tree of life is okay tree of knowledge of good and evil not okay We would say, "Oh, we would certainly choose." May I, may I tell you? Adam was perfect. Still learning, still learning by the observations that he's taken in, of all that God created for him. and eventually, as we'll find out in the next portion that uh, another person comes along from the very side of Adam. side, Probably this side. The rib nearest his heart, probably. Eve. But that's when problems start. No, not with Eve. You husbands, I hear you. It isn't with Eve. Well, eventually. But I mean, you know, not right away. (laughs) Let's wait till we get to chapter 3 before you get too cocky there. (laughs) Choose you this day. See, we know what's going to happen in chapter 3. But why? A perfect created being. If he, can fa- if he can fail, what about us? On the other hand, if we know that we have failed, and we look to the tree of life, In us, we will have paradise regained and the hope of eternal life with God, with Christ, unto eternity in His paradise. I think the choices are clear. Look around the world today, a world that has fallen, a world that has been Corrupted and perverted by sin and death and man is, is desperate to try to change things his own way and we haven't seen it work in over 6,000 or in, well in at least in 6,000 years what's the answer? God says look to me all ye ends of the earth Find your salvation in me. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Think about that rest. When you think about the rest that God gave to Adam when he placed him in the garden. That's the rest that Jesus wants to give you. No longer bearing the the weight of, uh, of your burdens of guilt and sin says come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden I'll give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light Jesus carries our yoke and we just follow him in joy and in love yes the trials may be tough sometimes But Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you. If we can trust the first four words of Genesis 1 verse 1, then you can trust when Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you. You can trust that. Amen. Let's pray.